IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we present our first all yay or nay episode. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's the yay to my nay, <laughs> Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? So I'm I'm reading this book right now called Unscripted, which is about uh, the sum like Sumner Redstone and Viacom and CBS. It's basically the inspiration for a lot of the plot points of Succession. And one of the things they bring up this term is like a breach of fiduciary duty to shareholders and. I mean, are we doing that right now by banking an episode when there's like uh, Oasis, the 1975 beef ongoing right now? Yeah. So Ian just announced this is a banked episode. That's why we're doing all yay or nay. Although we've been threatening to do this for a while. (laughs) I I call it promising to do it. Threatening. I I think this is what the people want. (laughs) I mean, it... uh, I feel like it came up as a joke at some point, and then it became real because we started getting a ton of yay or nay emails, and they've just been stockpiling. So I was just like, we should just do a, like an entire yay or nay episode, and then also throw out some of our own yay or nay scenarios. Uh, you're right, though. I mean, this is like a busy time of the year. Like we're actually starting to get like a lot of music news after like May was 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 pretty dead, but June's going to be hopping. Uh, but we're baking this episode because I'm off. The last week of May into June, uh, it's a working vacation because uh, I have a book deadline in June, and I have to um, basically just do like revisions for like a week. I'm like 92% of the way there, but like that last 8% is really important. So I had to take the week off. We're banking this episode. It's all yay or nay. I mean, you're referencing the Oasis 1975 beef. You're referring to the Noel Gallagher quote. Where what did he call Maddie uh, Healy? Pons, like a I don't know, idiot? man. Like what? Are, what are those? What are those oasis? What are those terms that sounds like super hella weak when like an average British guy says it, but like when one of the Gallagher brothers says it, it's the most like devastating crawl into a whole insult imaginable. I I, I believe that the term slack jawed was in there <laughs> right. somewhere, uh, which is great. That, that's brilliant. Um, that may be old news by the time uh, this episode posts, or maybe there's like a whole week of insults that we missed out on recapping. Um, and I'm going to feel bad about that. Um, but you know, it just had to yeah. be done. So a, you're on, you're on your, I'm a fix wolf shit right now. So exactly, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm with Rick Rubin in Paris, <laughs> uh, you know, trying to whittle down Jesus into like a masterpiece. So, uh, that's where we're at right now. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for yay or nay. Uh, I'm trying to remember like how this got started. I think someone wrote in and like we did like a yay or nay on i forget what band it was yeah not it it wasn't it it wasn't against me that wasn't the first one but i feel like that was like a definitive one because it set the you know it set the trend of us talking about bands that like are kind of in our general sphere but like we never really levied an opinion upon right exactly so and there's you know there's people out there they want to know our yay or nay take on pretty much every band on the planet so we're going to be talking about some bands here but we also have like broader concepts as well i have a concept for Mm -hmm. you that i want to bring up because it's something that it's one of those things that like i realized about myself makes no sense (laughs) 
in terms of like my show etiquette or my show sort of demeanor, like when I go to concerts. And I want to bring it up with you, but we'll get to that later. Let's get to our first yay or nay. This comes from Michael and Nyak. I think it's Nyak. Nyak? Yeah. You kind of have nay or yay in the name of this town. Yeah, that's pretty Yeah, that's pretty cool. N- Nyak. Nyak is sort of like if you're in the middle. Right. If you're, if, if you're not sure. Nyak. Like, yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah, like the kind of mid, <laughs> mid, midway, yeah. Yeah, like you could go either way. That's, that's the push. So, Nyak. Nyak, New York. <laughs> Michael. Uh, the client start. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I think that's good though, because I actually yeah. do have a push for one of our uh, categories here. So I'm going to throw out the the NIAC for that. Um, anyway, this is Michael from NIAC, New York. He asks the clientele, yay or nay? Now the clientele, of course, band from London. They've been around for about 25 years. Well respected in indie institution. I believe they have a record coming out next month. They do. Actually, yeah, in July or something along those lines. Yeah, they're, they're definitely an album mode. Clientele season approacheth. So we're getting ahead of the curve there. I don't know if we would have done a clientele episode, so it's good to talk about them now. Maybe we'll revisit when that album drops, if, if it is a late career masterpiece or not. But uh, clientele, I mean, they've got a lot of albums. They've been around for a long time. Yeah or nay, Ian? So you said they've been around for about 25 years in the promo i got for the new record they said 32 years which is absolutely mind-blowing to consider i mean their first record came out in 2000 right yeah and that was a compilation of stuff they had been working through the 90s so i actually wrote uh a 20th anniversary piece for suburban light which is uh, considered i guess their first album when it's really a compilation just for that alone i'm extremely yay on the clientele i so like so like were they putting out singles then in the 90s yeah like extremely british indie you know move to put out like a bunch of singles with b-sides on the uh you know a bunch of labels that are defunct right now and so th- i think there's been like three different versions of suburban light based on like who's reissuing it like there was the original one and then Merge signed them and put out uh, a new version with a couple of songs and a different cover. And then they did it again for the 20th anniversary where they removed some songs. So I, I don't see it as like squeezing a dime out of, you know, support the clientele hive. But it's so they had like a seven year run of just singles. Some, I guess so. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's crazy. But yeah, um, I'm extremely yay on this. I love Suburban Lights so fucking much. Also, Strange Geometry, which came out in 2005. I mean, we can do an entire month or year of 2005 Indie and just a lot of great memories associated with that one. It's kind of like the like Suburban Light was there one that was very, it was like lo-fi, but not like gritty. It was just, um, you know, like what state-of-the-art bedroom pop, what that meant for like the UK in 1998 great poetic lyrics. Like uh, one of my favorite music writer uh, lines of all time came from Mark Richardson writing about this band. He said, when your parents complained that you didn't live in the real world, this is where you were hiding. And, you know, I discovered this band when I was like 22 or 23 and boy, that really struck home. So, um, and you know, they've put out a lot of really good records in the time since Um, I sort of lost track of them with uh, God Save the Clientele, which was in 2007. Just a really extremely well-produced record. And, 
you know, aside from like those two massive peaks of strange geometry and suburban life, they're kind of a song by song band for me. Um, you know, I like a couple from each record and I pay attention, but I don't really love them in the same way. Their new song, the new song they put out sounds, and this is like so deep in the weeds indie cast core. It sounds exactly like Mr. E's Beautiful Blues uh, by the Eels. Uh, oh, that Boy, that's that's a future yay or nay. That's, like the, that's that's too deep even for me, man. <laughs> I, I I I mean, if you just said eels, I'd be with you. But if you're dropping like specific songs by the eels, then I start to drift into outer space a little bit because I, <laughs> I, I don't go deep with that band at all. I mean, like with the clientele, uh, they're a band that like I don't go deep on. But whenever I listen to them, I feel like I should own every album. Like mm-hmm. they're a really good band at what they do, which, as you said, is this sort of bedroom pop, jangly guitars, the kind of music that could have come out in 1967 or 1997 or 2007. Like, it doesn't really belong to any one particular era. It just feels like this kind of music, it's like what it always sounds like. And, like, they're one of the best practitioners of it. I mean, it it does seem to me that they have a pretty fixed style where if you have a record like Suburban Light, you may not need the other albums because you can kind of get what you need from that. I mean, that could be a wrong impression because, again, I I don't go as deep with this band as I do with, say, like Yola Tango or Stereolab, who, in my mind, I group with the clientele, even though, I mean, I guess the clientele was a 90s band because they were putting out these British EPs. I mean, even though, like, here in America, I feel like it really wasn't until the 2000s that people started listening to them. So they're in this sort of like weird area, I think, where like I don't think people talk about them with the same level of passion that they do like a Yola Tango. Uh, partly because they're not as good as Yola Tango, but also I think the clientele, they kind of exist in their own solar system. Uh, where like I th- in, a way I th- in a weird way, I, they sound like a 90s band, but like they're associated with the 2000s. They make this music that doesn't really feel like it fit with what else was going on in indie music at the time like they just kind of do their own thing which is which is great uh but yeah they're 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 an interesting band i, I they're like like their own moon i think mm-hmm. uh but yeah i give them a yay too i like yeah. them I, I and i sometime i'm gonna go on a clientele kick and go really deep with this band but for now i'd say for those of you out there who haven't listened to them suburban light is the place to start Right? Would you say yeah, that? Yeah, I'd say so. You know, I, I think if you start there, uh, that gives you a sense of like, you know, what they're like, why they have such a big indie following. But I, I would say that like Strange Geometry is the best front to back and it's a little more accessible. The production's better. The songs are a bit more catchy, but there's a lot more charm with Suburban Light. And I mean, when I listen to the, I, I get like, not like wistful, but like actually kind of sad when I listen to these albums now. They just seem like too beautiful to exist in the world that we currently live. I I just can't think of a modern equivalent of a, not even a band that sounds like the clientele, but like a band that does this sort of thing at the current moment. Because, you know, I there's a lot of bands doing like Dream Pop or, you know, British Indie or like Smiths type stuff, but it's it just can't hit the same, it, it just cannot hit the same chord. Yeah, I mean, like, real estate, I think, hits some of the same notes, but in a weird way, 
the clientele has like a has a mystery to them. Maybe because they're British, that like real estate <laughs> doesn't. Real estate feels more like okay, I know who these dudes are. Yeah, I have, a, I have a sense of who this is. There's not like the mystery there. They're writing about like life in New Jersey, suburbia. Yeah, <laughs> suburban New Jersey, and I guess the clientele in a way are too because they have the, the word suburb is literally in the title of like their first <laughs> full album. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, you know, we were talking uh, in our previous episode about indie sleaze. And these early clientele records coincide with with that era, but like this is probably like the least sleazy band <laughs> of yeah. of like aughts indie. I can't think of like a less sleazy band. There, if you know where to look, there's a lot of drugs going on in uh, the clientele stuff. Like Reflections After Jane is clearly af- about weed. Like uh, Since K Got Over Me is apparently about doing ketamine. Um, I guess, but like it doesn't have a sleazy vibe. Oh, absolutely more, not. It's more of like a I'm I'm laying in my bedroom with the lights off, and I'm stoned and I'm listening to this beautiful music. It's yeah. not like I'm doing blow off of keys and trashy bathrooms, <laughs> you know. Like that's the indie sleaze vibe. Uh, so yeah, so we're both yay on the clientele. It's hard to imagine being nay on the clientele. I guess if you don't like beautiful jangly guitar pop music, I guess there's people out there who don't like that kind of thing. But yeah. I want to hear from that. Let's get. Uh, I mean, don't don't do it as a bit. But like, if you if you like fucking hated the clientele as if you're like a forty something person who just did not get the hype back in like two thousand three or two thousand five, write in. We want to hear from you. Ah, uh, do we though? Do we want to hear from those people? Uh, do we want to hear like because they're just gonna say it's boring or I don't okay. know. We don't need to hear that. Um, let's get to our next year and a here. Do you want to read this uh, email? Yeah, totally. So um, this is from Stephen from the Bronx. Um, yes, from we, the this Bronx. is like the yay or nay of like New York. We have like Nyack, which I imagine is like very bucolic, and like the Bronx, just like to say Bronx. Like, yo, just I'm, let I'm you know, I'm yeah. Stephen from the Bronx. <laughs> yeah, that's how right. he introduces himself like at all times. I imagine. <laughs> uh, so the unicorns. Yeah, oh man, the unicorns. Yay or nay? As someone who was 15 when Who Will Cut Our Hair When We're Gone came out, they're a a seminal band of that era to me. But I've never heard that kind of love from anyone older? My obscure indie flex was that I was at their breakup show in Houston in 2004. A truly disastrous evening. Mm. So he's saying that they're like like a millennial band and not like a... You know, like people like an older millennial or Gen Xer wouldn't like the unicorns. I don't, I, I, I'm not sure about that, Stephen from the Bronx. Yeah. I don't know. I, there's probably like a range of ages of mm-hmm. people who got into this band. And for those who don't know, the unicorns, they were this band uh, from Canada who put out one record in, I believe, 2003 called When Who Will Cut Our Hair When We're Gone. Mm. And it got a lot of hype at the time. And then they imploded pretty soon after that and uh yeah this is an interesting thing to bring up i don't really hear the unicorns referenced much these days uh and they're another band that feels a little out of place in in the aughts i guess you could group them with uh maybe the fiery furnaces like in some way is could be in a similar type vibe to the unicorns i mean they toured with fiery furnaces okay well uh, there you go and hot hot heat and the decemberist and arcade fire so yeah decemberist too maybe they're like a less antic version of what the unicorns do i mean in my mind i think of them as an elephant six band that happened to live in canada and came like around about six years too late like that's Mm -hmm. the vibe i get from from them 
And, uh, you know, at the time, this record didn't really connect with me. And I actually revisited it because of uh, Stephen from the Bronx here bringing it up. I gotta go nay. I'm not a huge fan of this band. Um, but it's a weak nay. Because I do feel like I have some friends, I think, who like the unicorns. And it's possible that... I'll be at a cabin someday with like these college friends of mine and this album will come on and I'll have just the right number of like Miller High Life's in me to like really <laughs> connect with it. So it's a weak nay, but I'm open to it being a yay at some point. Yeah, that, I've been like in a very consistent state of that with this band for the past 20 years. And I think it's funny you mentioned them being like an Elephant Six band. Like the label they were on was like Alien eight like the number eight so it's kind of sort of like the 90s version of that or sorry the 2000 versions of that but um yeah the unicorns are a band that like i've tried many many times to get into like in 2003 when i was like peak pitchfork pilled and just like forcing myself to like stuff like fiery furnaces or deer hoof who you know i associate them with or juju um i like Sort of like that one Islands album in 2006. So uh, oh, yeah. went back, tried that too. Uh, Jogging Gorgeous Summer, great song. Um, and every now and like, I feel like every year there's like a unicorns discussion on like amongst my music Twitter friends. And, you know, some people are like, yep, yeah, just still don't get it. And other people feel like they were, you know, pop geniuses. Like this is like, it's sort of like from like the whole Sid Barrett lineage of like, these fatally flawed like pop masterworks that you know just never got the attention they deserved and i don't know when i go back to this album like i think back to hearing this you know cracked pop genius stuff like with deer hoof and fiery furnaces that was like used by critics back in the early 2000s and you know when i think about that i'm like maybe poptimism wasn't such a bad idea you know because like this was this was the kind of uh critical discourse that was happening like look i am all for like annoying shit music um i love the meishi i think there's some elements of uh the unicorns and glass beach and you know maybe some of the more fifth wave emo stuff i like but i'm like disappointed in myself that i haven't come around on this band yeah i you know i i think there were other examples of people doing this at the time that just caught on a little bit better. Like I think of like Up Montreal, for instance. Oh, of course. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like they had a moment, like that's a band. Do we want to do a quick yay or nay on Up on Up Montreal? Like <laughs> uh, they call it audible? Like uh yeah, no, yay let's or nay? Because I'm at a yay of Montreal. They're a band I think that's kind of underappreciated at this point. They really had a moment around the same time in the mid to late aughts, uh, where they were doing some really cool things with bringing i guess like an r&b sort of prince aspect into like this elephant six template and uh their live shows were were fantastic at that time like they were a really good live band i'm not sure like what is the status of of montreal like i i i lost track with them like around like skeletal lamping like that (laughs) yeah period like i feel like they started it started to get a little too maybe convoluted like there was that period uh, you know, in the mid aughts again, like uh, what, what's that record? Satanic uh, Hissing Panic? Fawn, are you the destroyer? That one, and there's a Satanic Panic at the picnic or that something. That one came before. Yeah, like that stretch, I think was really strong. Um, 
And then they fell off. But you mentioned Glass Beach. And I feel like they totally have an of Montreal influence on what they're doing. That's a band that I think people should go back to, though, and revisit. I think there's like a lot of ground that they covered, things that people could take from that band and extrapolate and turn into like a whole other thing. Yeah. I mean, I look, I lived in Athens, Georgia from 2003 to 2006. And like you would hear, oh, Kevin Barnes is at this party. Um, also, sh- one thing I love about Kevin Barnes is that in the Endless Endless book uh, written about the Elephant Six Collective, it mentions that they are, uh, they like were good friends with Mark Tremonti, who eventually joined Creed. Like those, they were like inseparable growing up. And I think Kevin Barnes is still a Cleveland Browns fan. Um, yeah, Hissing Fauna, Are You the Destroyer, great record. Like, Of Montreal is a band that, like, a lot of bands, like we talked about in Yearnate, I love one album and, like, the rest I could take or leave. The, the, the thing I love about this band is that when you look back at the concept of Hissing Fauna, Are You the Destroyer and Skeletal Lamping, it's about, uh, and, you know, Kevin Barnes has undergone some, like, I, I believe they've, you know, come out as either non-binary, like, they're, or something along those lines. Like in the book Endless Endless, it's they use he he pronouns, like saying that like they eventually switched to she. Um, but yeah, it's at that time they were a like Georgie Fruit. They thought that like they they invented like a black transsexual like version of themselves. <laughs> like you just can like shit you cannot do in twenty twenty three. Um, but it somehow worked. It's it's sort of like uh, a reflection of its time and sort of ahead of its time in a weird way, but just in a, a bit of a uh, awkward kind of clumsy way. Yeah, and there is like a an indie sleaze element a little bit to of Montreal, but it's more theatrical. Absolutely. I would say it's more imaginative. By the way, Mark Tremonti, I'm going to give him a yay. <laughs> I interviewed him for my uh, Woodstock 99 podcast. Very nice guy. I've, I've heard from other people. That he's a mensch, you know, that he's a good dude. So, like, if if, if uh, Tremonte and uh, Kevin Barnes are still friends, I could see that. Yeah. It seems like Mark Tremonte of, of Creed, if you're going to hang out with anyone from Creed, <laughs> make it Mark Tremonte. I, uh, I, yeah, I'm going to give him a yay. I'll give him a yay. Do you have an opinion on Mark Tremonte? Uh, the higher riff kind of goes. I'm not going to fucking lie. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's get to our next yay or nay. This comes from Eric in Madison, Wisconsin. Yes. Good to hear from the Scanies out there. Eric says, big fan of the show. I want to know your opinion on backing tracks at indie rock shows. Yay or nay? This came up because I saw a video of Muna performing Silk Siobhan with Boy Genius at Coachella. The performance itself is great, but I got super distracted by the big distorted guitar sound in the chorus that nobody on stage seems to be playing. I'm not throwing shade at Muna because I know pop acts use backing tracks all the time, but it made me realize how much of the appeal of live music for me is seeing songs arranged into something that the people on stage can play. I feel like it wouldn't have been that hard at Coachella to get someone, even Julian, Julian Bacon or Lucy Dacus, on stage to mash those power chords so the visual of the show match up with the audio. What do you think? Am I being an elitist rockist? So Eric wants to know, backing tracks at live shows, yay or nay? Well, yeah, I'll just say, Eric, yes, you are being an elitist rockist. You're like, what an asshole this now I'm just playing. Um, <laughs> I would say that, like, <laughs> I, I've i noticed this more and more. And, like, you know, I knew back in the day, some like, with really, really big stadium bands, sometimes they would have, like, guitarists, like, hidden behind the stage. 
Um, you know, especially if it was like a power trio. But um, yeah, Eric gets to a point which, you know, I think I agree with, which is that it kind of depends on what the backing tracks are. Um, you know, like a lot of times you'll see a band use like drum triggers or like synthesizers because look, I, I don't think you need to learn from IndieCast that it's really hard for bands out there to bring shit on the road. Like not just like the finances of bringing this equipment, but you see how many times like synths get stolen or just bands get broken into. Um, and look, like I think it's really cool when huge bands bring like one instrument that they use for like five seconds of a song. Like when I saw Robert Smith play a flute at the beginning of uh, burn or when I saw bright eyes and they had like a baritone guitar for like one song. Um, but I think I can't say yay or nay or this because it's so contextual. Like when I saw a hundred Gex the other week, it was like all backing tracks. Um, I'm, I'm told they brought out a guitar for like one song, but you know, no one's there to like see a hundred Gex, like reimagine dumbest girl alive for acoustic setting. Um, you just want to, hear the song, dumb the fuck out. And in that situation, it's great. Um, and you know, if there's something that's a little more like kind of gimmicky, like a sample that needs to be replaced verbatim, fine. Uh, I can't imagine how I would react if M83 didn't have a saxophone guy for Midnight City. I mean, they do bring a guy, like fortunately they have saxophone on multiple songs, but, um, yeah, but like, I, I think, I think it, kind of depends for a band like Muna who's like you know not necessarily like a like a power trio like guitar drums bass like I'm fine with that um but uh, I saw a bit like when I saw Ben Quad uh a little while ago great Oklahoma emo band like a lot of emo bands they have like uh uh like samples from like TV shows that they use instead of stage band or while they tune and they got their gear stolen the night before, so they had to, like, talk before. So if it's not a load-bearing thing, like, yeah, then I'm against it. But if you, if you need to do it just in order to put on a show, that's fine. Like, I I know that's, like, kind of uh, wishy-washy, but uh, it's all context. So what you're saying is that you're giving it a NIAC. Yeah, that's pure NIAC. Yeah, I'm going NIAC on this one, too, uh, for the reasons that you said. I think that especially for smaller indie bands, if you only need a certain sound on like one song, you can't really justify bringing like another musician on the road. You know, you got to operate on a budget in these situations. So especially like with smaller bands, I, I tend to be more understanding about pre-recorded backing tracks. I will say though, I mean, I, I get where, uh, Eric is coming from our letter writer here because I do think it is a little deflating if you go to a show and you realize that like not all the music is is live. Uh, that's not really why you go to a show, and it just makes it I think less exciting to see a band uh, if the guitar being piped in is not being played by anyone. It's just like from the record that you can just listen to at home. Um, my favorite example. Of this phenomenon, and I, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show before, just because I think it's so hilarious, but I saw MGMT on the Congratulations Tour, and in the main set, you know, they have a band, and they were basically just playing songs from Congratulations, and very indifferently received in the audience, <laughs> 
And then for the encore, the, uh, you know, the two guys that come out by themselves and they basically just like press a button on a laptop and like kids comes on and it's just the backing track from kids and like they're singing over the backing track in a very nonchalant way. And it's like the worst performance of the night, but the crowd goes crazy <laughs> because they've been waiting for this song, you know, the whole show. And I think they played another hit from uh, the first record. I think it was probably Electric Field that they did after that or in some order. And they did those songs to backing tracks. And it was almost like they wanted to make it clear how little of a shit they gave <laughs> About these performances, so because they because they had a band there, they could have played these songs with a band, but it was like okay, we know they don't want to hear our like zany, adventurous new material. They just want to hear the hits, so let's just give it to them in the most perfunctory manner imaginable. And the backing tracks, I think, in a sense, were like a middle finger to the audience. Uh, but again, the audience didn't care because they just like, wanted <laughs> to hear that. So it was like this it was like this protest that kind of proved why they were protesting. Um so yeah, I don't know. I'm giving it a a a niac. Like you said, if you're seeing 100 gex, you know, do you want them or need them to be touring with like an eight-piece band and, you know, with lots of chops and all that kind of stuff? Not really. But you know, if you can afford it, if you're playing Coachella, like Eric said, hand Julian Baker a guitar. Have her strike some chords, and there you go. Maybe that be, would be a fun thing to do. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to see that? I imagine they'd eat that shit up. But, I, man, I love. I haven't heard that MGMT story, but I love it. It's like, hey, this is basically karaoke now. Like, here you go, you dumb fucks. Like, when I, when I saw MGMT, I just, like, want to see MGMT because, like, every time they come to town just for how they treat that song. Because when I saw them at Just Like Heaven, the big nostalgia Fest of 2019, they were just like taking as long as humanly possible uh, within their 45 minute set. So it's like, hey, if we like play our new shit for long enough, maybe we can get away with like playing like us, like a verse of kids. Like when you see um, like rap shows, some like you'll like they'll like sometimes they'll just do like one verse of their hit song. Um, and this also, we haven't even talked about like what it's like when, uh, you know, when you see like a rap show and it's like, uh, they have like the like the rap over the actual CD with like the vocals already on it. It's a real sight to behold. Yeah, MGMT, yay or nay? We're both yay on that. Yeah, right? very yay. Conceptually, yeah. one of the greatest yay, like huge yay. Conceptually, have I listened to their self titled in since I reviewed it ten years ago? Absolutely not. But you know, I love the content. I I just love their approach. Are you yay or nay? Like, congratulations, are you yay or nay? You know what? Like, I don't know if I've actually listened to that album in full. I, oh, I my God. I know, right? Like, I'm surprised as you are by that. But may, maybe that's going to, you know, with the two weeks that we have uh, between, you know, now and our next recording, I promise I'll give it a shot. I'm a strong yay on congratulations. I I, I, I wrote a piece about congratulations for... I don't even think it was linked to an anniversary. I think I just wrote about it. I think because MGMT had a new album out, and I, I just wanted to write about Congratulations just because I love that record. It's like one of the great like sophomore albums of like modern times. Like the, we're going to totally just try to lose our audience type 
sophomore record that like was common in the 90s and like no one makes anymore mm-hmm. like no one really sets out to do like the alienating uh confrontational second record um and then i remember there actually was like a 10-year anniversary of congratulations and i pitched it again to my to my editor phil and he had to remind me like you wrote about this like two years ago and i was like really <laughs> i totally forgot i was just like so psyched to write think pieces about congratulations that i totally forgotten so yeah you should have let me do it and just like have you ghostwrite it yeah you know i'm just like i can't believe you haven't listened to that in full i i you know uh I, man too I, I don't know what i was up to in 2010 that was a strange time but a uh, little dark age that's a great song that is but that's on a later record yeah that's the one maybe you wrote about that came out in like 2018 or something like that yeah yeah that's a great record. I, I like all their records. Congratulations, though, as a warm place in my heart. All right, well, uh, let's get to our next one. This is a good one. <laughs> yeah, I love the... F- I, I, I think that this episode is justified for this question alone. So this comes from uh, Kevin from Ventura, California. Uh, and Kevin asks us, Mortal... <laughs> just, I, just, I don't even want to, like... Read read their letter. It's just I just wanted to like read Mortal Kombat soundtracks and just have us riff from there. But um, Kevin says my favorite albums from when I was ten: the Mortal Kombat one and two soundtracks. Yay or nay? So this is a fascinating question because I had not heard the Mortal Kombat soundtracks one and two before uh, we got this uh, this letter here from Kevin, and it really is like. A rabbit hole of of music here because well first of all these are all this these albums are like time capsules for new metal post grunge and like techno basically like from the 90s like the three greatest genres of all time all together <laughs> in one place and uh it's crazy because okay so he makes reference to uh mortal kombat soundtracks one and two but there's like a ton of Mortal Kombat albums, like I, because so, like, like I was going on Wikipedia, and okay, so there's the Mortal Kombat movie soundtrack, which is one of the albums he's talking about, and then there's also Mortal Kombat More Combat. That one which killed is, me. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's also that's like another soundtrack for the first film. I guess because the first soundtrack was so successful, and then there's also Mortal Kombat the album. <laughs> Which was a soundtrack released for the video game, I think the year before the film came out. And that's just the score by the Immortals, <laughs> who are the group that like composed like the techno music that you hear in Mortal Kombat. And then Mortal Kombat like, 2, is he referring to like, like there's a sequel to Mortal Kombat? Yeah, there, the, more, the, the Mortal Kombat soundtrack extended universe is way more convoluted than any of us could anticipate because yeah, there's tons of them there's yeah because there's the movies but like there's the direct-to-video movies and the soundtrack and then like apparently the first movie and the first soundtrack were so popular it, it like it was taken as a mandate for more of the same so uh yeah and this is just a great relic of the cd buying era because my favorite albums from when i was 10 like i know this dude had this like scratched up uh Mortal Kombat soundtrack that like he could only hear three min like two out of the three minutes of Utah Saints doing a song called Utah Saints take on the theme for Mortal Kombat. <laughs> like, 
Like, I'm just picturing Kevin as, like, AJ Soprano. You know, like, <laughs> uh, like, that's who I'm picturing, like, listening to these albums. Because, yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, you have Utah Saints. You have, like, Stabbing Westward. You have three. I, I got to mention, like, bef- like this is, like, pre-New Metal, like, before it started. But, like, I got to, like, before we talk more about Stabbing Westward, I got to, like, include this fun fact, which is that three Stabbing Westward songs were included in the movie but they weren't on the soundtrack. Um, I'm thinking because like TVT, the label, which, you know, had Nine Inch Nails, Pretty Hate Machine. I guess they were trying to like juice the sales of Ungod. Yeah, because you have, okay, so they're not on here, but you have Gravity Kills. Hell yeah. Uh, the demo version of Goodbye. You have KM, FDM. It's a Giorgio Moroto like remix of a song called Juke Joint Jezebel. Oh, hell yeah. I remember hearing that on the radio. Is a song by Tracy Lords on here? Is that like the Tracy Lords, the, the porn star? Or is there like a different Tracy Lords? So you bring that up because there's also a song which is George S. Clinton featuring Buckethead. And it's not that George Clinton. Well, that's why he has the S in there. He's got to like, he's got to differentiate. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion. <laughs> there's a lot of confusion going on. Um, yeah, you got Fear Factory. You have Orbital, you have a Napalm Death song Hell yeah. on here. But it's not You Suffer. Like how, like on a movie that is, just, like on a, on, a, on a video game, which is like fatality. Like that's the big thing. It's a one second fatality. You had, you gotta put You Suffer on there. So like, okay, so the Mortal, because, okay, I'm looking this up. Because like Mortal Kombat 2, like that is for the film or is that just like another video game soundtrack? I know there was a second movie. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's the movie. Okay. Again, this is very confusing. I feel like this has opened up a world for me that I didn't know existed. And now I'm being driven insane trying to decipher it. Because, like, I just want to know if Kevin was also into, like, just, like, the score. Like, the techno (laughs) score. of the, Or was he like, okay, I love... I want to hear the demo version of Goodbye, so I'm going to buy this album. Like, like what was the motivation here? I, I, I'm very curious. I mean, obviously, he was a fan of the game, and then presumably he saw the film. Like, have, have you seen the movie? I, I, I have not seen the movie, but I, got, I get a feeling that I could probably explain what happens. Okay, because I'm looking this up. Mortal Kombat 2, this is... It, it's... It says it's the soundtrack from the arcade game. It's by a dude named Dan Forden. Sure. <laughs> and this came out in 1993. So, okay, so there's a the game Mortal Kombat 2 is it's not it's not the sequel to the film. It's just like the sequel to the video game. Yeah, I'm unclear on whether he's a fan of the <laughs> arcade game soundtracks or like the film soundtracks. It absolutely have to be the film soundtracks because I don't like, know. I don't cuz like is he going to the films as like a ten year old? Like, are these movies like rated R? I imagine, but like, I don't know. You have permissive parents back then, but you know, like you mentioned, AJ Soprano. Like, th- this is like the perfect like pre new metal sort. Like this miasma out of which you know new metal grew because you have like you have like the you have like the kind of heavy industrial techno uh, acts, like a lot of like the post nine inch nails uh, gold rush bands, like gravity kills and probably God lives underwater and mother's day out. Like if you, if you can remember mother's day out, like you like that is S tier remembrance of guys. It's like, 
it, it's like rap metal before rap metal. And, you know, and, and yeah, I just think about this as like a yay on general principle because, you know, as we've talked about so many times, uh, the most interesting things to discuss, like, aren't the great albums, but like what happens when there's just like a lot of money going around and nobody knows what to do with it. Um, and by the way, like the Mortal Kombat soundtrack or the, just the Mortal Kombat song um, and the industrial versions of it. I spent like a good amount of like my teen years thinking like, oh, this is what people mean when they say rave music or techno. It always sounds like the Mortal Kombat uh, theme song like that. That was my that was my grasp on what electronic music was as a teen. So I'm I'm digging in here. There's also the Mortal Kombat Annihilation soundtrack, and it has some of the same artists. You have Cam, FDM. You have you have a Megadeth song on here that was remixed. So it's I'm guessing that's like a techno respin on like a Megadeth song. You have a like a Rammstein song. You have Face to Face, a little SoCal punk on here. Uh, you have somebody called Scooter. <laughs> sure. And Psych- uh, Psychosonic, they were also on the other one. Scooter more, is definitely the kid of a, of a TVT executive. Uh, more George S. Clinton. He was eating in the 90s. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, man, this is just a rich world. I feel like this could have been its own episode, just talking about Mortal Kombat spinoff soundtracks. Yeah, I got some homework. I got to listen to MGMT, congratulations, and I got to listen to the Mortal Kombat Annihilation soundtrack. I am so looking forward to your vacation. Yeah, man, that's going to be a hell of a day there, man. You're going to have some great nightmares uh, that (laughs) night after that combination of music. Um, Let's get to some of our own yay or nay scenarios. Do you have one for me? Yeah, and I'm like I'm all I'm like already regretting this choice because we were having so much fun and talking about this like mid '90s trash, and we're just going in the completely opposite direction with this one. But you know, we we've talked a lot on this episode about your view on like Blur versus Oasis, and like I I know our audience knows where you stand on this, but there's kind of an in between of these two bands that I want to talk about, and that's Pulp because. Um, I mean, in terms of comportment, like Pulp is very much more like Blur than Oasis, but they were kind of seen as these like instigators taking down like the whole, like deflating the big Brit rock royalty thing, at least before OK Computer kind of killed it all. Um, and so they, they, I don't think they, like they, they made We Love Life in 2001. I think they broke up and Jarvis Cocker has gone on to make a lot of solo records and just kind of be this guy who's just in the general atmosphere of music of that sort. But um, I'm curious to know like what your take is on Pulp. Uh, I'm a fan of Pulp. Um, His and Hers is a really good record. Uh, The one after it that has common people on it, different Different class. class. There you go. And then I think uh, uh, This Is Hardcore was the one after that one. That's Mm -hmm. the run that I'm most familiar with. I mean, there's albums before that and there's albums after that. But like those three were the big ones. And it is like a – there's an arc to those three where, you know, His and Hers is like the scrappy Britpop album where it kind of feels like that's where it all came together for them. And then different classes like their What's the Story, Morning Glory, (laughs) you know, like where this is where they really become as – like, I mean, they weren't really superstars in America, but like they were a cult band in America, and that was like the big record. And then this is hardcore. 
in a way, kind of feels like they're Be Here Now. I mean, it's like not as uh, bloated as Be Here Now is in, in the best and worst ways. Um, but there is a sort of like hangover feeling to that album that uh, is part of like what makes it like fun or maybe fun's not the right word, but it makes it good to listen to. So those are the three records that I'm biggest on with Paul. But yeah, I'm definitely a yay on them. How about you? So this is a band that I, I, I loved in high school, which is a very odd thing to say, you know, as we're talking about, you know, like listening to like Mortal Kombat soundtracks and Tool and playing like GoldenEye 64. Um, this was a band that I listened to a lot in high school because I, I felt like listening to Pulp made me feel smart or at least appear smart. Like imagine being like 18 years old listening to This Is Hardcore and like the title track just talking about like the complete emptiness of having too much sex and be like, yeah, that that's something I totally relate to as a <laughs> senior in high school. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm jaded as fuck. And I don't like in the in the time since like my tastes have shifted and this kind of ties in with like our, you know, the indie sleaze conversation. But like, I find that like when I reach for, you know, British rock music of that era, I'm like leaning way more towards like Verve and Oasis and the stuff that like is fake profound, but rather than like these withering views of like adulthood. And also I think that, um, it, Jarvis Cocker, he makes me think of like the, you know, the old phrase, possibly apocryphal, like David Lee Roth saying that like music critics like Elvis Costello because they, you know, they look more like him. I think Jarvis Cocker is like a guy that music critics of a certain age, like kind of think they're him or they like kind of aspire to be him. Um, and you know, that's like kind of a turnoff. Like, and I know that's like my problem, but, um, you know, when I listen to, this is hardcore recently, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Like not because I relate more to it now that I'm like the age that it's meant for. Uh, I think musically it's really interesting. It's a daring record um, in terms of deflating their big, uh, like their big, um, you know, their big moment with uh, common people, which was seen as like kind of toppling the Glastonbury hegemony. I hate the way I sound when I say that. Um, but yeah, this is, I'm, I'm in, a, I'm like, yeah, I'm like yay in private, but like nay in public, you know, with this band. Um, I feel like, you know, Pete, there, there's just this kind of, I don't know, like costume that comes with liking Pulp that I find to be, you know, reflexively not great. And so, yeah, uh, a band that, I don't know, discourse is not totally ruined for me, but like has made me less inclined to like them. Yeah, I, I, I... I'll say that like his and hers is a record that I think is the one I'm going to reach for if I'm listening to this band. I, and I think because that's right before maybe some of the things you're talking about like set in. And it is interesting how you frame them as like a midpoint between Oasis and, and Blur because um, I do feel that Paul musically does have some of the fun that you get from Oasis records. You know, and, and and Blur's a fun band too. Like, it's not like they're overly intellectualized or anything. But I don't know, Pulp to me, I, I I guess just like Jarvis Cocker appeals to me as a lead singer. I feel like there's obviously a lot of people 
after him who have taken something from what he's done. You know, whether we're talking about like Matt Berninger or we're talking about like Alex Turner from the Arctic Monkeys. Franz Ferdinand, mean, does... yeah. Franz Ferdinand. There is that sort of like Arch Bowie thing that he has that he did in the 90s like as well as anybody and uh so he's like maybe a missing link between like bowie and like these modern kind of poetic deep voice guys who wear suits and feel like a little intoxicated when they're on stage i mean that that's the whole jarvis cocker thing and i and i and i respond to that i think more than you do so i i i can connect with that part of uh, of pulp so yeah, his and hers, different class. Those two records, I think, are really good British rock records of the '90s. So yeah, strong yay for me. Um, so I have a kind of an unusual yay or nay for you, and I want to set this up a little bit because uh, I was at a baseball game last month with my family, and it, when you take kids to any kind of game, you have to expect that you're going to spend like a hundred hours on food because. If they're not eating, they're instantly bored. So you got to just be throwing hot dogs and big pretzels and nachos into their face just to keep them engaged with the game. So I'm, I'm, and, I, and I'm eating food myself. You know, like if I go to a baseball game with a friend, I'm always eating food. Or if I'm going to a basketball game or a football game, I usually get something to eat at some point. And it got me thinking about concerts and how... When I go to a game in an arena or a stadium, I'm eating food. But if I go see a band in the same space, I rarely, if never, get food. And in a way, it feels kind of strange to me to, you know, be mowing down on like chili cheese fries if there's a band on stage. It just made me feel like that doesn't really make any sense. Like, what is the difference between a show or a game? Why can't you eat? Or why does it feel weird to eat at these shows? And then it, and it made me think, too, like when you go to a club show, there's never food options. Or rarely there are food options. You know, you can't get a hot dog. <laughs> you can't get a big, you can't get some nachos and then, you know, watch the DIY punk band on stage. And I'm like, well, why not? I mean, <laughs> there's probably people who would appreciate that. So my yay or nay question for you, Ian, is eating at shows, yay or nay? And I'll say for me... I guess it's a nay because I don't do it, but I'm going to nay my own nay because I don't think my aversion to it makes any sense. It's something that must have been conditioned into me at some point. And I'm wondering, maybe I should start eating at shows because I, you know, like you went to go see The Cure Mm -hmm. and they're playing for three hours. I mean, you're going to want a snack in the middle there, but again, you're going to go up to the stand and order nachos like while they're playing disintegration you know it seems in congress to me but it shouldn't be is this just something for me am i like weird with this like what is your take yay or nay eating at concerts yeah i'm like no i'm like not here i'm like being very careful not to be like critical or judgmental of like how you're a dietitian should, yeah yeah you're, you're a dietitian i i understand that but like so, but in general like i think the difference between a movie and a uh, you know, a baseball game and a concert is that, you know, with, with the cure, like you're seated, like at those two, but like movies and baseball games, like they are, they're much more passive. Like you're watching something as opposed to dancing or participating in it to a degree. So it makes more sense to, you know, be like, be seated. You're, you're just intaking this. It's like not all that dissimilar from like watching TV, but 
Um, you know, at most concerts, I think about the fact that I'm standing or that I'm sweaty or that like I'm like surrounded by other people. And if I'm, you know, if I want to like enjoy, you know, like a hot dog or nachos or whatever, like, I don't know, I guess that does kind of break the spell, uh, you know, that you're trying to, you know, engage with at a show. And also like, yeah, you, you mentioned about like how at the DIY show or even at the club, they never have food. Like me, I can't go three hours without eating. So like I'll smuggle in a cliff bar or something like that just because I'm a complete fucking wimp. And if I if I'm like two and a half hours into the show and I'm, I haven't eaten, I get real whiny. But I just can't fathom why your average like 200, 300 cap room like doesn't have like a convenience store type option where you can get like a banana or like a cliff bar. Like, you know, I can think of so many shows where you know, uh, halfway into the open, halfway into like, you know, the third out of five acts, I would like definitely pay like a $200 upsell or not like a 200% upsell for a cliff bar. Like I would pay five bucks for a cliff bar. No fucking questions asked. That would be a much better way to like make money as opposed to like taking a cut of the merch. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, let's say you're at the turnstile show and you're like, I want to get a plastic helmet like filled with like a banana split, you know? (laughs) Like, why can't you do that? It's like they have all this alcohol there. Like, why not be like, hey, I'm going to go. Uh, I don't like this song. I'm going to go get a brat. I'll be right yeah. back. Yeah, you, you know, could get a cowboy dog, like something called a cowboy dog <laughs> at the Cure show. And this is because, like, at those shows, you're at, like, a stadium that only sells stadium food. So, okay, so I, I'm giving this a nay based on my previous behavior, but I'm going to give it a yay because I think it actually should be more of a thing, eating at shows. Like, how do you feel about it? Like, what's your yay or nay? I think there's just, like, an, a lot of, un, there's just, like, a lot of potential uh, for, for like, a better food experience. Like, in between, like, uh, you know, like paying $15 for the Supreme Nachos that you can listen to while, like, Robert Smith sings 100 years. And the, you know, doing the thing where you, like, hope to God they don't patch you down and take your Quest bar that's been, like, melted in the car. Um, like I, I, I feel so guilty, you know, advocating for venues to rip off people who come to a show more than they already do, but like, don't touch the merch. Don't touch like the ticket sales, like, please just like sell a, sell a tiny ass thing of trail mix for $10. This is win-win people get food they want. And more to the point, like you make a dollar off this, like airport style, like this airport style extortionate fees or just yeah plug in a popcorn machine man get some popcorn (laughs) sell some peanuts some cracker jacks all that stuff like bagel bites hot pockets man like do you know how much money you could you, you get at the fucking diy emo show if you had bagel bites oh my god it'd be amazing so you never gave it a yay or nay on this what's your yay or nay are you giving it a a niac yeah, I'm like, what? yay on whatever people need to, like, you know, feel good. But if you're eating, like, chili cheese fries, like, next to me during the Cure show, that's a nay. So this is our first all yay or nay episode. I think it went well. I'm going to give this a yay. 
on yeah. this uh, format. We'll see if we do it again. We'll see what our listeners think. But thank you for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie. And I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 